welcome to State of the Nation. David and I are super excited to have you tuned in to this special episode where we are talking to the founders of Three Arrows Capital, a fantastic, very large investment firm. We're talking about their rotation into Ether the asset. David, they're pretty bullish, man. What what's your take on this episode? It's always funny when we bring on guests who haven't historically been ETH maxis and then they come on and they're more bullish than us. Like both of us <laughs> exactly put together. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Suzu and Kyle Davies of Three Arrows Capital. They are famous for generally just getting things right, having incredible reads on so many different things all at once, on-chain metrics, you know, mainstream media and narratives, you know, crypto Twitter. Look, man, uh, they, they make the trade you wish you made, but they do yeah. it six months in advance, yeah. like almost consistently every time is how mm-hmm. I think about them. Yeah. And, and so let it be known, like traders can be successful. And, and these guys have been one of the uh, most successful trading firms in perhaps in crypto history, period, question mark. I don't actually know, but it definitely, it definitely feels like that. And so they have a lot of prowess, a lot of clout. And so people definitely pay attention to what Three Arrows Capital is doing. And recently they have gotten very loud about their ether rotation. Uh, there was a very big podcast that went around on Uncommon Core with uh, Kobe, a multi-cycler uh, crypto trader, uh, and and Sue Zhu, who's one of the one of the guests, one of the two guests, one of the two founders of Three Arrows Capital about the flipping, right? Ether flipping, Bitcoin and the ether trade and the just the magnitude of both Kobe and Suzu uh, publicly talking about their conviction about the ETH flipping was a big deal in of itself. And so we got Kyle and Sue, which is actually the first time they've actually ever been on a podcast together. We got them both on to talk and go into more detail about this Ether rotation, this massive uh, just price run up of Ether. We are at six green weekly candles of on the Ether US dollar chart and the Ether Bitcoin chart. Uh, Ether just p- painted a $1,000 Ether weekly candle last week with its when its previous uh, 2017 all-time high was $1,440. Uh, so p- painting a $1,000 weekly candle is absolutely insane. And we asked, I asked uh, Sue, like, Sue, let's, let's try and measure the magnitude of this move. Like, and I asked him, do you think this is the biggest event in crypto's history? And he said, yes. And that that's bullish. <laughs> that's pretty much how the podcast went. A lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of that back and forth, a lot of bullishness. Um, guys, we usually do state of the nation live recorded. We weren't able to do that this week just because of time zone conflicts. So this is pre-recorded and playing to you right now, but this is just a fantastic episode about the ETH trade, a trade that, uh, I think is the one to make if you don't have enough exposure to ETH right now. And certainly the three arrow capitals folks do as well. Just a few other things before we get in. What's new in the nation, in the Bankless Nation this week? We just dropped a fantastic episode with Vitalik on legitimacy. Guys, I can't say enough about Vitalik, of course, but this episode specifically, if you don't understand legitimacy, you don't understand crypto. That's what I walked away from that episode with. It's kind of the theory of everything. It answers 
many of crypto's frequently asked questions. And I think you need to wrap your mind around the episode. And Vitalik was just brilliant at, at laying out the case for what legitimacy it is and why it's so important in crypto. David, any other reflections on that episode? Yeah, I frequently say that the crypto vantage point over just the world at large, not just the financial world, the macro world, but almost almost the whole entire world, the, the perspective and the position of, of viewing the world that crypto gives you is really advantageous. And I don't think you can get that in any other industry. And that's really well embodied by this particular episode with Vitalik, where we just answer some very fundamental questions, not about crypto, but about the universe, the whole, the whole goddamn thing. And it just <laughs> happens to apply extremely well to crypto and answer some of crypto's you know, like most frequent, like, like you said, the free, most frequently asked questions and, uh, you know, a, a, a composed theory of everything, uh, which is embodied by legitimacy, I think really does a good job helping people understand why things are what they are in crypto. Uh, and I, I think the, 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 the fastest way I could explain this, this podcast and how it relates to crypto specifically is that crypto doesn't have any real world assets, ether, Bitcoin, they're all virtual. And the reason why these things are valuable while still not being real or at least tangible is because of legitimacy. And so that's why Ryan says, if you don't understand legitimacy, you don't understand crypto. So if you listen to Bankless, you basically have to listen to this episode. Yeah, you have to. There's no other choice, guys. <laughs> also, um, one last opportunity we want to share with you. Our friends at Upshot are running a beta promotion for bankless badge holders. Upshot, of course, they are becoming the Zillow of NFT pricing. So you know how Zillow has a, a Zestimate, so you can see the price of your NFT. They have that as well. And they've opened the beta to bankless listeners. You could basically do like a, a hot or not which NFT do you like better? Which NFT is worth more? Uh, and you earn from directly from the Upshot protocol from your appraisal. That's what you're doing. You're saying this NFT is better than that one and you're earning USDC and Upshot tokens as well. So make sure you check out what Upshot is running. You can go to app.upshot.io. There's also a link in the show notes. David, are you ready to get into this episode, man? Absolutely. Let's oh, do it. before we do, I got to ask well, you the before. question I ask every week. Uh -huh. What is the state of the nation today, sir? The state of the nation is rebalancing. All of the crypto world seems to be rebalancing. Uh, there seems to be just a massive inflow into Ether. And I think that also comes from outside of crypto. Uh, and so there are some institutions that I would not yet consider part of the bankless nation, but they are rebalancing into Ether and therefore rebalancing into the bankless nation all the same. Meanwhile, we have uh, you know longtime Bitcoiners uh, rebalancing into Ether. Generally, people are the, this massive trade, this massive move into Ether that people are making is really people who were perpetually underweight Ether and just did not have a, a measured amount of Ether exposure. And they are now rebalancing their portfolio into Ether. If you've been in Ethereum since, you know, since I got into, into 2017, Ryan, you got in, I think, in the, into, into the world of crypto in 2016. If you've been paying attention to Ethereum, you have been waiting for this moment. And it feel, it, the fact that it's actually here kind of feels like a, a unicorn, but uh, it, it, regardless, it's here, the unicorn exists and people are rebalancing into Ether. Now, all you have to do is ride that unicorn, right, David? Nice, nice, <laughs> Rebalancing nice. is the theme for today. David, remind me to tell you the story. I actually got my first DM from a Bitcoin maximalist that said, actually, I have changed my mind on Ether. 
um, I'll have to share that story with you. Maybe we'll nice. share it on the weekly roll-ups. But uh, anyway, stay tuned. Well, for what it's worth, Suzu shared similar stories yeah, on this episode. <laughs> so it's there's happening. more where that came from. Yeah, I don't know how rare that's going to be, but mm-hmm. my first one ever. So sort of exciting. Stay tuned for this fantastic episode. We're going to dive right in. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this Bankless episode possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Synthetix is Ethereum's decentralized derivatives liquidity protocol. What does that mean? Synthetix is a platform for creating and trading synthetic assets, which are assets that are priced via an oracle rather than bids or asks. Traders can use the Quenta exchange, which hosts and trades all of the synthetic assets created by Synthetix. Traders on Quenta can trade synthetic tokens like SBTC, SOIL, or SDFI. Because Quenta is powered by synthetics, traders experience zero slippage on their trades. No, I didn't mean low slippage, I meant no slippage, because that is the power of the synthetics platform. No slippage on your trades. You can also easily short assets with iSynths, which are synthetic assets that move inversely to their target asset. Synthetics isn't just for traders, developers can build on synthetics to access the infinite liquidity offered by synthetic assets, or investors can stake collateral to the protocol and earn fees that the protocol collects. If you're a trader and you're looking for a trading platform not found in the legacy world, check out quenta.io. If you're a developer or you just want to earn yield on your collateral, go to www.synthetics.io where you can stake your SNX or ETH and earn fees from Synthetics. Bankless Nation, we are super excited about our next guest. We have Suzu and Kyle Davies. They are legendary crypto traders, founders of the legendary crypto fund, Three Arrows Capital. We are talking today all about their ETH trade. Guys, someone said you were bullish on ETH. Is that true? It's definitely true. Definitely not (laughs) untrue. Uh, Well, well, welcome to Bankless. We are excited to dive into this. This is going to be um, a really exciting episode. I've heard, actually, this is the first podcast episode that the two of you are doing together. Is that right? Oh, so true. Wow, first time. All right. Well, this is exciting. You know, before we dig in, and I think the, the context for this episode is all about the ETH trade that you guys have been talking about, but David and I want to get a sense of how you guys think about crypto. So, the bankless platform is like, I, I would say almost notoriously long time horizon, right? So it's like buy and hold, here are the crypto money assets. DeFi is going to be big, buy and hold, 
we uh, place a lot less emphasis on the trading side of things, but you guys are traders. Can you talk about how that's different and how you approach uh, crypto from a trading perspective, how that's different from maybe narrative investing, long-term buy and hold? We'll start with you, Sue. Yeah, I think it is actually similar in a lot of ways, uh, probably more similar than it is dissimilar. I, I guess the one bigger difference would be sort of reflexivity and seeing when certain ideas or certain narratives are sort of best best positioned to take shape. So a good example is like, you know, if you're denominated in ETH, but it's late 2017 or early 2018, you know, even if you believe in it, you you may think also that ICOs just have millions of ETH that they don't really know what to do with and they need to pay people with. So that that kind of you know, may may make someone who's a long-term believer in ETH think still that they have to first go into stable coins for a while and then buy the bottom or 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 buy when it's you know been flushed out. So I think just like being aware, despite the long-term view or the midterm view, what what the short-term actors are most likely going to do, uh, sort of just thinking about uh, those kind of flows is is something that I guess uh, keeps us apart. I guess. Uh, so, Kyle, what would you say to that? I. Uh yeah, I would say it's it, I, I, we're much more similar in your mentality here, uh, in the sense that I, for the better part of two years, we've been like long, right? So uh, maybe 95% of the time, we've been like pretty close to almost a full allocation long. Uh, it's just a question of what we denominate in and what we, um, you know, it, it, and how what the composition of our book looks like. So just so happens right now that, you know, we, we're extremely overweight ETH. Um, but uh, it, it's not like we were, you know, we, we've been long crypto like all the way through, right? And, and that's, that's actually, I think, something that really sets apart Three Arrows from a lot of other uh, trading firms or market makers. Uh, long only funds, they're long only, for sure. But for like uh, individuals or trading firms, people that don't necessarily have to be long, uh, and have to make a, a decision. We we made that decision. We we made the decision that we uh you know we do take a core long belief in in, in crypto as a whole. So when you're going long, it sounds like there's like almost two layers to your strategy, right? So you have sort of the 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 long strategy where you've got these fundamental assets that you denominate in. Maybe that changes too. Sometimes that's Bitcoin. Sometimes that's ETH. But it's always crypto. And then you have like trade optimizations at the at the second layer, as Sue was saying, when a narrative's time is right, or when an asset's time time is right, you flip into those trading positions to optimize. Is that a good way to think about it, Kyle? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And and part of that, I think uh, we, like, we're involved in uh, the funding trade. Uh, so spot versus futures, looking at that, that basis. Um, we're involved in, you know, in uh, primary investment across a number of different uh, other projects as well. And so we, have a reasonable pulse on, you know, what we think is going to be big when, and like if the market gets a little overheated. And I think that's why, you know, we're not just uh, like a blindly long, a single, you know, particular asset for like a long period of time where we're rather saying the book is long, but now how do you want to denominate and how do you want this composition to look like? I see. I do see a lot of uh, resonance with, at least with my mental models, and maybe some of the things that we say on on Bankless, where we talk about, uh, you know, uh, maximize your exposure to the crypto monies, and that's what we call basically Bitcoin and ETH, and then also speculate in the app layer. 
uh, and uh, that app layer could also be, you know, um, not not actually applications, but also applications, but also perhaps, um, you know, just seed investments into actual, you know, companies and teams. Uh, Sue, when uh, you, you mentioned that, you know, you, you uh, when, when uh, we were talking about uh, 2018, 2019, you were talking about all these uh, ICOs that had all this ETH and didn't know what to do with it. And you integrated that into perhaps your model about the markets you know, and, and your and your trade. You know, generally uh, speaking, more generally, what signals or, or indicators do you guys really pay attention to? Like where what, what sources of information do you really consistently look at to inform your trades? That's a. It's a really tough question because it honestly depends. I mean, we try to be as intuitive as possible, actually, and it's kind of a, as macro as possible. So I think, you know, with some smaller trades, it can be more, it can be more finessed or be more quantitative, but with like Bitcoin or Ether allocation or Bitcoin dominance, it's really the whole, it's really the whole, I think, environment that we're in right now. So I think that we're in a backdrop where Bitcoin is 3x off its uh, previous all-time high, you know, 20 to 60K, and it's running into a lot of resistance a lot of people selling at the 3x all-time high and this isn't a backdrop where ether has had probably its strongest tokenomics uh upgrades as a base money that it's ever had in its history um and also in a backdrop where across many retail on-ramps and also just emerging market on-ramps ETH is already outpacing bitcoin as people's first buy in fact doge is actually outpacing bitcoin in, in some of these on-ramps as well so this this environment uh, is incredibly bearish for Bitcoin dominance, uh, and also it's an environment where now after the flush out in ETH, uh, and I, I would argue that there's been basically three flush outs from 2018 to now, uh, three distinct waves of flush outs. There's pretty much no one that has ETH that doesn't know why they have it. Like everyone who has ETH now, they really put in a proof of work to have that ETH, right? Because you could have lost it so many ways. You you could you, you could have sold it all to dollars at the bottom or near the bottom. You could have sold it all to Bitcoin uh, during the bear market. You could have sold it all to, like even to applications, right? Like ETH has outpaced a lot of applications by a massive margin now as well. So I kind of see that as sort of a, a massive scarcity play now that's happening where ETH is scarce versus not just like against fiat, but also scarce against the Bitcoin, the very overweight Bitcoin people. But then also even within Ethereum itself, a lot of ETH people don't have enough uh, ETH uh, because they either thought it was frothy when you know, layer ones were pumping and they sold to dollars. A lot of people did, did that actually, shockingly, uh, that I found out. And and so that whole environment is just very conducive to ETH now. And you're kind of seeing that squeeze. The articulation as to everyone who's holding ETH can articulate why they are holding ETH is is not something that I thought about. That's, that's a pretty cool perspective. Um, Kyle, the last time you and I talked was actually in November of 2020. And we were talking about on my other podcast, POV Crypto Pod, about how uh, Three Hours Capital was rotating heavily into, into Bitcoin and really maximizing its Bitcoin exposure while reducing its DeFi and Ethereum exposure. And this was coming right after um, you know DeFi summer, right? DeFi summer was definitely yep. cooling off. Uh, and that was the right move. <laughs> Bitcoin was like 10K at the time. And that's, and then, you know, just three or four months later, it was then 50K. Uh, and, and so um, let's start, I want to kind of start that, our conversation uh, there where we left off in, in November, you guys were overweight uh, BTC and underweight ETH DeFi. That trade worked. What, when you rebalanced your portfolio next after that, after that trade worked, uh, what did you rebalance your portfolio into? And was that was that the ETH trade that you guys find yourselves in today? Or was that was there a middle trade between now and then? 
so the first thing I should say is for application layer, for DeFi, uh, it's a completely distinct group. It's Defiance Capital. Mm -hmm. They have their own capital allocation and they work with teams in their long only. So for us, if we believe there is going to be uh, you know, a cooling off of uh, alts or DeFi or whatever it may be, uh, we're not selling DeFi. Um, so we are uh, very much, we have to head for something else. Um, so that's, that's a lot where uh, you know, we, had, we actually had a short on ETH, um, but the short was not a naked short, it was a short against you know, a large portfolio of applications, right? Um, with the, the thought being that I, we still want to win deal flow, we still want to work with teams, we still want to be long-term invested in applications. So this made sense. Um, and, and dominance ran all the way up to uh, 73%. Um, I was calling for 20, 75. I think we got almost all the way there. Um, but uh, but yeah, and then uh, I think the, the, the next big uh, portfolio allocation was leading into the uh, Coinbase uh mm. ipo uh like about a month before that we were looking at it thinking uh this would be extremely bullish ethereum basically um for many reasons but uh but basically this is when we started to, to think it, you know it was time to start moving that allocation around and then uh you know a little bit before uh we went you know very very overweight what was the connection between coinbase and ethereum can you elaborate on that for Bitcoin dominance, it, uh, like it takes a certain kind of narrative for a law uh, for for Bitcoin dominance to work. But part of that is not uh, capital raises, or because uh, anytime there's a capital raise, people have to make a decision, and anytime there's um, you know, like for example, anytime there's applications working, people have to make a decision. Or and anytime there's a decision, there's some uh, sort of diversification that happens, and people look at on-chain metrics and they, they look at many different things, right? Um, and I, yeah, so around a Coinbase IPO where they've got you know it's a, a, the largest US exchange with many different assets on it, and a lot of their marketing is around uh, you know people trading those assets, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think by and large that was going to be a, a like a, a big uh, Ethereum bull case. Sue, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think also, you know, the Coinbase shareholders, they're very overweight ETH, I think, in general, too, just in terms of both philosophy as well as their own coin holdings, I would suspect. So I think, you know, I mean, in late 2017, I think Brian Armstrong himself said he owns more Ethereum than Bitcoin. Um, and and so I think I think Coinbase, like I mentioned, is very bullish for ETH because it's, it's, it's sort of their... It's sort of their bread and butter almost at this point. Sue, in August of 2020, uh, you on a, on a podcast, like, again, I also think uh, POV CryptoPod, you said that it, you thought it was unlikely that ETH would ever flip in Bitcoin. Uh, but mm. recently on the Uncommon Core podcast with Kobe and Hazu, you and all the other guests seemed pretty convicted that Ethereum would flip in Bitcoin at some point in time. Do you remember what the catalyst was that changed your mind on this? And, and when did this happen? For me, I think it was a number of factors. One is Raul Paul, I think actually is quite influential in my thinking, just seeing his idea that new high net worth investors coming into the space institutions, they ultimately respect network effects and they respect uh, the size of the network and the utility of the network. And so I think when people start looking at it that way, if that's their framework and they, they don't come in assuming a, a monetary maximalism will take over the space, then I think that 
if you start putting metrics side by side for each of the networks and each of the coins, then I think Ethereum stacks up very well. And I think there's also something to the idea that that uh, people want a productive store of value as opposed to a non-productive one. I've, I've heard that quite a bit in people I've spoken with um, where you know they don't put a whole lot of non-productive SOVs in their portfolio if you're a pension fund. You don't even put gold in a pension fund, but you do put productive assets like commercial REITs, like, like you know things that earn a yield. And so there, a lot of people are really interested in, the, in what happens to Ethereum once it has a yield. You know, Now that it has one, people are seeing it. And I think too that... Um, I mean, if you asked me back in August 2020, I would have said that, you know, it looks like Sailor is going to be the first and then there's going to be a lot of other companies that do this, uh, putting Bitcoin in the treasury. But, you know, it's already it's already going into mid Q2 and it's still not that many companies that have done it. Right. And the the kind of price action doesn't appear like there's a lot of treasuries doing it. And so once you see this kind of skepticism toward this, just like everyone's going to hold this in the treasury, then the sort of the, the game is open again and and the you know the, the 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 kind of battle for store value continues and and so that kind of made me think that um if these things are all true then one you know retail already likes eth more than bitcoin because they resonate more with the internet of value as opposed to digital gold and then two is institutions want to own what other people own and on top of that they also like productive sovs and then thirdly, you know, we've already had a nice Bitcoin run and we already had sort of a activation of supply, you know, above 60K. That that kind of really puts the pieces in place, I think, for, for kind of seeing that. Uh, Kyle, I definitely want to get your opinion on uh, if, if you think Ethereum is, is flipping Bitcoin. But before we get there, Sue, you said that, um, you know, you're seeing just a lot of interest in pr uh, productive assets over non-productive assets and uh, perhaps positioning a trade based off of that. But, but what do you personally believe? Do you personally believe in productive assets over non-productive assets? Do you have an opinion on such a matter? I, I do, but I think it's, it's not as relevant what my opinion on it is at, at any moment. It, it's ultimately what people decide, right? Like if people, if we're in a wartime and no one, and there's very low activity, but then, then the Bitcoin, then the Bitcoin monetary maximalist argument can be the most valid because then people really do value that slight decentralization edge that Bitcoin has over Ethereum, right? As a, like as a base money. And, and so, but, but if we're in an environment where people are not going to be able to quantify that value very well, uh, of how much more Bitcoin is decentralized than Ethereum. Just like, you know, in, in Ethereum smart contract space too, most people can't quantify the difference between Ethereum's, uh, you know, decentralization and Solana or some other chain. Um, then you are going to have a lot of people be quite okay with that. And I think it ultimately depends on what users need uh, crypto for and what people want to use them for. And and I do think that um, in a a much larger percentage of cases than people right now believe that is going to be a preference for Ether. Um, so Sue, I, I think some of the bear case around Ether up to this point is um, part of the case that yes, people recognize that Ether will become a productive asset, stake it is enabled, but you just mentioned another crypto network called Solana, right? And there's not just Solana, there's you know, Car Cardano, there's a Binance Smart Chain, all of these things. Many of these are staking assets, right? And so all these other layer one assets can become productive assets as well when they're staked. But you made a distinction, which I think is important. You called ETH a productive SOV asset, which means 
uh, of course, listeners will be familiar with store value asset, which implies some level of monetary premium, right? And Bitcoin, of course, quite famously has a fantastic monetary premium. People believe it is a store of value. The bear case for Ether up to this point is has been, I think, that um, even if Ether becomes a productive asset, people won't value it as a store of value. It won't will not have a monetary premium. It has all of these competitors, these other layer ones that can also do the same things uh, it is doing. And you know, it's not Bitcoin. Bitcoin is crypto's reserve asset, has the store of value property. Those use cases won't flow over to Ether. I, I want to ask uh, about that, the store of valueness of Ether specifically, and whether you think that is a moat that other layer ones can't overcome and how it has started to achieve this in your mind. Can you reflect on that? Sure. I think it's, first of all, it's very hard to just come up with a new store of value, right? Because it's not just about the tech. It's also about the community and about the coin distribution, about the Gini coefficients, about how did people work to get the supply that they have and how do they value it? Uh, so I think that, in a way, it's quite beautiful for Ethereum that it's been done proof of work up to now because each Ether that has entered supply it has been costly. Um, and, and that process has made it so that um, supply has decentralized out. And that is going to be a huge struggle for a lot of proof of stake networks where, you know, the, the, a fairly smaller number of participants are going to have more of the coins. And it's very hard to, to distribute away. So I think distribution, Ethereum has a huge edge. I think. Um, also in terms of, in terms of the, the competition for smart contract block space, I do think that anytime you have smart contracts actually being deployed on chain and being used, whether that's on Ethereum or another chain, I actually think that's very bullish for Ethereum because it goes against the entire Bitcoin, not blockchain argument, which is that blockchains are not that useful. The only use case of blockchains is money. Well, it turns out not. And then, you know, with interoperability and with sort of uh, bridging of assets across chains, you you know Ethereum stands to be in very good shape in an on-chain world because uh, there will be a huge number of participants who do value the highest decentralization for on-chain activity, and more so, there will be a lot of developers that build applications for that. So I think it's it's almost kind of ironic because I think despite the whole ETH killer narrative, it's actually, I think these have been actually very good for Ethereum because one has pushed the application progress very quickly, it's pushed the scaling progress very quickly. And two, I think it's that it's shown the world that there's actually a lot of demand for on-chain space. Like you think about BSC, right? BSC has shown that if you if you did have lower fees, then here here's what users would actually do if they had this. Uh, so. So, so our, our take has been up to this point that there are two crypto assets that are emerging as a store of value, Bitcoin and Ether, right? And others could emerge as a store of value, but like not anytime soon and probably not this cycle. Does that take overstate, you know, what, what you're saying? Do you think other layer one assets could become a store of value in the future? I think Doge, I think Doge arguably is, is starting to look like it could be because it's got absolutely incredible volumes, right? And it's got absolutely incredible memes as well. So I don't see, and, and it's also very old, also very old, also very old and very decentralized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't see any reason why it can't be. And I do think Doge is something too, where it definitely helps Ethereum in a way because it, it just chips at this idea of Bitcoin monetary maximalism because Bitcoin monetary maximum wants to say, it wants to assert that 21 mil supply cap is the reason why it has any value. It wants to assert that 
you know, these are all the reasons why it has value. But meanwhile, Doge just comes in with no cap and and outperforms, and it also kills the narrative that you know there's no alt that can beat that can be up in Sats. Well, actually, you, you're up actually a massive amount in Sats in Doge. So that that kind of just the presence of Doge, I think, has been one of the biggest bearish Bitcoin dominance cases because now everyone sees Doge and they're like, okay, then I don't have to just you know, denominated in sats. I don't have to just, I can also just see what's, what's fun and I can explore all these different assets. And, and so that uh, I think is also becoming a store value. I mean, it's also very cheap, right? And it's very usable. So is, I mean, granted not many, many people are using it, but it, it, it does offer a, a different niche. Um, but you so guys I aren't long doge, right? Or are you? We are not, we are not long doge. Why? But, What's the difference? Um, it's, it's something we may be long in the future, uh, but it's definitely an interesting asset that I think caught everyone by surprise as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Caught a lot of people by surprise, but I think it does show the power of, I think it does show the power of memes, right? And and it and it definitely contributes to Ether's meme being more stronger than ever because with the ultrasound money meme, now it gives space for Ethereum to come in and, and say, uh, well, we are actually even lower inflation and uh, you know, you get a natural yield from holding it. So, so the that kind of contrast is going to be very stark uh, for p- people when they when they check out the space. Kyle, before I ask my next question to you, do you have any reflections on what we've been talking with Sue uh, recently? Yeah, the only part I would add is a deflationary asset is uh, is really going to resonate with a lot of people. Um, I think there's like there's this point where you're, uh, you know, you're bullish Ethereum, the network, and uh, you see, especially you see all the fees that are happening on it. And then, but you have to ask about the value accrual, and it's just a speculation on that. But once you can see that it's a deflationary asset, uh, or it gets, I mean, it's no longer a meme, it's just mm-hmm. like, it, it's actually deflationary. And I think that will, um, that, that, that moves a lot of people, uh, the needle for a lot of people. Kyle, some people are still skeptical that deflationary assets actually going to happen. We are still in a pre-implementation yep. world of EIP fifteen five nine, and of course, the yep. uh, proof of stake to you know, like the proof of work merge has not happened yet. Um, so, some people will say, "Yeah, there's a ton of execution risk in taking the position that you're betting in a deflationary asset." What would you say about that? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, I, I definitely believe in, uh, you know, discounting execution risk, but that's like what makes a great trade too, right? Or a great investment. So, I mean, if it was fully priced in, like, I don't know, maybe he would be 15K right now. So, <laughs> um, I don't know, I don't know where it would be, but, um, is FUD, but by the way. Yeah, it'd be a very different investment. <laughs> Wait, 15K is FUD too? What's, what's, uh, if it's, if everything is priced right, I think 15K is FUD, but. Wow. I, so, I do want to get it. <laughs> I do want to get into is that specific number, but first I want to to ask Kyle. Uh, Kyle Sue here was on on that that podcast with with Kobe and, and Hazu talking about the inevitability of the flipping. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely do. I think uh, the, the closer it gets to, um, like, it just has to make a run at it. Um, and especially the nice thing about the uh, current state of the Ethereum roadmap too is. Uh, there are events happening in like two months and like seven months out. So even after one five five nine, like there, there's no sell catalyst. Like there's you're still waiting for the just the next one, right? Like right. and and it's within a reasonable uh, time. If it's like years out, yeah, it's a little bit different story. Or if there's 
you know, we're post, uh, like in a post proof of stake world, then now you need to price it and, uh, and just believe it's going to hit, you know, the, you know, the, the correct, whatever, uh, you know, PE ratio or however you're valuing these things. But, uh, but pre that, yeah, you can just execution risk. If you believe in it, you believe there's less execution risk, great trade for you. Yeah. Yeah, Ethereum seems to have a lot of arrows in in its quiver. And we've talked a, a decent, uh, we've danced around the subject around like mainstream media and, you know, public narrative with this current like Ether move and, and overall how you guys position your trades. Uh, and and I kind of want to attack that subject a little bit more directly. So how, how are you guys weighting mainstream media and its current like uh, understanding of this space, the Bitcoin, the the Bitcoin trade, the Ether trade, the the everything else trade, um, but also uh, more specifically, uh, do you guys consider like the energy consumption part of this, perhaps this Ethereum move late, uh, as of late, or do you do you guys think perhaps that's not here yet? I think it's not quite here yet because the merge hasn't happened. So I think you will actually need the merge to happen before the mainstream media will pick up on it, uh, because. That's just the way media is. Um, mm -hmm. So I do think that that'll be a, another great catalyst. I think also it's like a it's a big contrast to late last year, right? Where you know FBTC went to 0.042 on the Beacon chain activation and also on DeFi somewhere, and that was kind of like a like it's kind of like a premature move in a way because that was right like when Bitcoin was about to get you know Sailor is going to buy an absolute monster load of Bitcoin. There's a lot of you know, high net worth and corporate buying of Bitcoin. And, and so that was almost like a, it, it was too early because it was too far away from EIP 1559. That was more just an idea at that point uh, that was getting traction. But like how said, like now we are in the midst of, you know, the media picking up on the fact that, you know, Ethereum uh, may become more deflationary than before. And the media is picking up also on the fact that DeFi is not just uh, is not just a small meme anymore. It's not not just a niche. It's something massive, right? We have, you know, we have global governments looking at how to you know deal with DeFi and how to encourage it even. And so I think that 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 kind of backdrop and also Nifties as well. I think you know we haven't discussed Nifties yet, but I think Nifties is incredibly bullish for either because now culture uh, culture is now native to Ethereum. And I think once you get culture as well, that's actually when a lot of people wake up because they say, well. I can be bearish on Bitcoin as a store of value because I think it has no use case, but I cannot be bearish on culture existing on Ethereum. I just, that that's an incoherent position to take, right? Uh, so I think the fact that, you know, athletes and, and artists and musicians are, are, you know, getting very active in the Nifty market, that brings incredible cultural prestige to the idea of Ethereum as a settlement layer. And, and that I think is actually incredibly difficult for anyone else to fight against either, because that, that does have a lot of network effects. I want to say something about this and ask a follow-up on this because um, this is something Dave and I have been talking about for a while. Like the most bullish thing for Ether is to be understood. And uh, I still feel like we are so early in the cycle of the world actually understanding Ethereum and Ether. I mean, you look at like uh, Google searches and Bitcoin is way up there. Ethereum is almost nothing. NFTs have done something, but people still haven't associated NFTs with Ether as an asset. I, I'm curious how early you think we are. It feels like mainstream understands what Bitcoin is, like Bitcoin, digital gold. People on Wall Street can articulate that. If you ask random person on the street, he could probably articulate that as well. But they do not understand ETH or Ethereum. And this is where I see 
much of the upside. So if you consider that EIP 1559 is going to happen, proof of stake is going to happen, right? The majority of the, the bull case upside is actually the world understanding these things and for the first time understanding ETH the asset. And I'm, am I overstating the case here? I feel like the world is maybe like 5 to 10% of the way to understanding Ethereum. And there are very few people who actually know about EIP 1559 and fee burn and that issuance is going to drop deflationary. Like there's a very small cult group that knows about it now. Um, am I overstating the case? How early are we on that, Sue? Maybe you first. I think we're very early in terms of people getting a proper understanding of Ethereum. I think nowadays, even most, I mean, like even skeptics, they roughly understand how Bitcoin works. But just in terms of the basics of how Ethereum works, it's a more complex chain and there's a lot of activity going on. So um, a lot of skeptics don't even realize that a lot of the skepticism that they have toward Bitcoin, they can't use on Ethereum. Uh, in the same way. So I absolutely agree with you. I will say just as a slight counter to that, though, is that I do think that retail, they're naturally much more drawn to Ethereum in the first place because they already don't resonate as much with digital gold. And they also, they, you know, either they participated in ICOs back then, or they, you know, nowadays they participate in, you know, some, some other activities. But I do think that there's something very fascinating about the fact that I think retail has been more overweight ether than a lot of institutions. Up to now and i think that they've been right as well and that kind of actually is almost like a fractal of like crypto itself where retail has also been ahead of institutions and also has been right you know DeFi was invested in by retail mainly uh during its first run-ups and 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 so that kind of almost like makes it that much more powerful in a way that it is grassroots individuals and and as opposed to entities that have been capturing a lot of these moves i gotta say retail being first is one of my favorite things about crypto <laughs> it's just great i love it Hey, Bankless Nation, I hope you're enjoying the interview thus far. In the second half of this conversation, we go into the specific details of the numbers behind the Ether trade. Like I said in the intro, ETH is on its sixth weekly green candle in a row, both against the dollar and against Bitcoin. And I asked Sue to help us measure the magnitude of this move. And his answer was a really fun one. And then at the end of this conversation, we zoom out and have the conversation about crypto cycles. Uh, Sue and Kyle actually have differing opinions about what the future of crypto cycles looks like. Sue thinks that this is generally going to be perhaps the last crypto cycle. Kyle is not yet convinced. Uh, and then we get into uh, price predictions where uh, Sue, unlike most of our guests, Sue did not dance around the, the issue and actually gave a specific number of what he thinks Ether could run to in the short to medium term. Stay tuned for the second half of this episode. But first, before we get there, we have to take a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their Earn program, where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi, or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. 
when I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. MetaMask is your go-to wallet for the bankless journey. If you're going bankless, you need MetaMask, period. Browser and mobile, get them both. This is your tool to unlock the world of DeFi. Here's my favorite part. Now you can swap tokens directly in MetaMask with a single swipe. This has got to be the easiest way to trade Ethereum tokens. Choose a token you own, a token to exchange it with, get your quotes. If you like what you see, you hit swap. That's it. What makes swaps so useful is what happens behind the scenes. It compares DEXs, aggregators, and market makers to find you the best price with the lowest network fees and the least slippage. This means you can swap a wider range of tokens and swaps can even automatically split up your trade to give you access to better liquidity. You don't even have to think about it. Try it out. Download MetaMask for desktop or mobile now at metamask.io and start swapping. So I want to get into this actually, the details of this current Ether move and, and specifically the Ether trade. So so right now, Ether is on its sixth weekly green candle, uh, both on the dollar and on BTC. Uh, Ether just painted its biggest green weekly green candle ever at almost $1,000 in one week. Absolutely massive for, uh, for an asset that's previous all-time high was $1,400. Uh, it's up 25% in the week. Uh, meanwhile, like Ether BTC is point over 0 0.07, which it's only been higher uh, or it's, it's only ever been higher versus Bitcoin for like, I think a total of five or six months in all of its lifespan. How do you guys explain this massive move of Ethereum? Like, and, and also, can you help us measure its magnitude because you know crypto is crazy so sometimes crazy things are actually not all that crazy because you know we're inside of a uh, we're inside of just a, a crazy world so it's hard to measure craziness um so so can, can you guys reflect on that how how big is this move and why is this move happening uh kyle let's start with you yeah um well i think there's a real power to proof of like a proof of lindy so um before something like hits an all-time high again, especially after a big flush out, uh, there's always a question of, you know, is this a dead cat bounce or is this, uh, you know, what is the value of this asset? And that's not correct. Like that, I mean, Lindy just means, is it alive, right? <laughs> that's the definition. But, uh, but actually people don't realize it until you start breaking all-time highs. So, uh, so for, for Bitcoin did it first, right? Versus it's 2017 all-time high. But for Ethereum now, um, this is like when people wake up. This isn't, you know, when people capitulate or they take profit or whatever. Like this is when this is when people that were in Ethereum that heard about it, that uh, had some money allocated, probably lost a bunch in 2018. Um, this is when they 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 load up, um, and that's I think what we were saying. Like anytime we're looking at uh, all time highs. Um, it gets me excited because it, same goes for like NFTs. Uh, you know, you, we saw uh, CryptoKitties in, uh, in 2017, but then we saw nothing for a long time, right? But now we see an, an emergence again. This is a proof of Lindy. Like the, 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 the likelihood of a big 
NFT boom again, or like a continuation is now actually quite high, right? Whereas just as of last year was demonstrably lower, right? So um, I think that's, uh, that, that is really important actually. But Kyle, um, so Kyle, what about this, right? So this almost seems to be playing out almost in a, in a similar way to the way uh, 2017 played out. I don't know if you think that it's kind of a fractal to 2017 or, or not. Maybe you could comment on that. But the, the one thing that's different is uh, Ether right now is approaching half a trillion dollar market cap, right? Yeah. This was not the case when it started its run in 2017. So isn't it going to take a lot more money, more capital, bigger buyers in order to to move the price in the way that it did in 2017. Any reflections on that? And where's this money coming from? I mean, there is just so much money in the world these days. And people were saying the same thing about Bitcoin when it was like 10K. And anytime it went to 10.5, people just thought it was going to get crushed again. And then it went straight to like 55, like all the way up to 60K, right? So um, I think that is much more remarkable in terms of the volume of dollars that went in to buy Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, there's just so much money in the world. Like if you have to ask yourself, like, where, where's the incremental dollar to go in this? I, I would just feel like that's the wrong question. Um, and, and, and the, the, I mean, the, the answer here is going to be, it's going to come from Bitcoin and it's going to come from uh, dollars basically, right? Um, but I, I, I just feel like if you have to think of like who the incremental buyer is every time, that's what's going to, that's just, you're looking for reasons to sell. And you can, and if you're looking for reasons to sell, you will always find them. It's uh, this particular argument to me never holds weight. Like who is the incremental buyer? Because yes, obviously at the top, there's no incremental buyer, but like, did your analysis truly bring you to uh, like a good conclusion there or not? I think that is, uh, yeah. Well said. So let's talk about the, the magnitude of this move. In, in, in my opinion, the, uh, this Ethereum uh, move, both versus dollar and versus Bitcoin, is perhaps a, one of crypto's largest events ever in its 12-year history. Would you guys agree with that kind of like bold statement? Uh, Sue, yes. uh, let's start with you. Yes, absolutely. I think that it's broken key 2018 levels and it's it's at the point now where like I know people that have flown around the world to move their Bitcoin cold storage to buy Ether. Like I know that that sounds kind of insane, but I think that that'll continue if it gets to point one. Right. Because in the previous, you know, near flipping cycle, you know, there were a lot, a lot of talks about Bitcoin OGs moving to Ether and Bitcoin cash and this kind of stuff. And that, that like then turned out to be a panic and people said, well, that's repudiated or that's refuted, right? Um, but with this key, I think the key break was probably 0.05 and then 0.06 uh, a couple of days later. Um, you know, you, you kind of can't, it actually, it actually kills off a lot of arguments uh, like against sort of a more pluralistic distribution of value in, in the crypto space. Um, it's definitely making a lot of people wake up, right? Because now if you're an allocator, you look at the space, you saw even the banks, right? JP Morgan, they, they were putting out research about how Bitcoin, you know, analyzing the digital gold thesis. And then they put out another thing about, you know, just covering the Ethereum uh, bull run and then saying how, you know, there are actually a lot of reasons why Ethereum might outperform. You know, the clients are demanding it and the coverage is also demanding it. So I think that, um, and actually I, I strongly believe, I mean, Mark Cuban, I think a great example of, of someone who was skeptical on crypto as a whole, but then seeing the adoption of on-chain activity through DeFi and Nifty's, Came, came to realize that this was the next inheritor of sort of big tech uh, vision. I was speaking with a, with a billionaire big tech investor the other day, um, 
And he was saying how the reason he allocated to crypto uh, is purely because of the idea that, you know, he's been long all these, you know, big tech internet stocks for many years now. And he thinks that um, it cannot continue uh, in that direction for that much longer. Like there, he's asking himself almost like, who is the incremental buyer sort of in your speak, but he, he, but he's almost thinking like, you know, if the generational trends move uh, toward a more, you know, distributed future, then it's still very early because no one understands this yet, right? Very few people truly understand this as sort of the inheritor of, of the new internet. Uh, so, so I think that um, it's, it basically allows, like price is the best predictor of price and price is also the best, uh, you know, it, it makes all the narratives, it makes people listen to all the narratives. So it makes people try to understand. Uh, and that process is making a lot of people wake up and, and allocate. So are, are you seeing maximalists capitulate then? Or are they going down with the ship? I mean, it's tricky, right? Because if, you're, if, you're, if your brand is a Twitter Bitcoin maximalist, then you can't really capitulate in public because you'll lose followers. But I'm sure privately, a lot of these people own a lot of ETH, actually. Um, and I think they're not incentivized to talk about it, but they, they definitely do. You can see it in the price action on, on some of these exchanges. Um, you know, the FBTC volume has been incredibly high on Bitfinex, for instance. It's been about a third of the ETH volume on several days. You know, that's people who currently own a ton of BTC selling that BTC specifically for Ether, right? It's not, it's not dollar, it's not dollar-based buying. So, um, but yeah, like um, that, that kind of also goes along with the idea that, um, like I always found it funny, right? Like either people, they, they used to always hold a lot of Bitcoin because they'd be like, well, the market is irrational. I need to have some Bitcoin just in case. And then Bitcoin people, a lot of them, they hold a lot of Ether because they're like, well, the market's irrational. I have to hold some Ether just in case. <laughs> so it ends up being like everyone's 50-50, but for different reasons. Uh, you know, that, that kind of, a lot of people are like doing Pascal's wager there now. And they're just saying like, even if this is like, well, not what I believe in the market, I, I don't like, I prefer wealth. So I, so I just buy the one that the, the market wants. Like I don't kind of fight against it. I actually think the hardening of uh, Ether's monetary policies, bringing some of the sound money people that have been Bitcoiners for a long time over, because the one one criticism that I think had a lot of validity from the Bitcoin side is like, what's Ether's plan for issuance into the future, right? And you know, Ethereum's would say things like minimum vial issuance, and they would say, yeah, but show me the code, show me the demand, and now that's starting to to harden. Do you think that's part of the the transfer here, the issuance policy being? you know, formed and articulated well? Uh, I think for sure, part of it, I think like Kobe mentioned in the previous one, like there's always a camp that thinks that Ether's just too uh, centralized. There's too much control by the core devs. And so it can be captured. And then once governance is captured, then the whole chain is kind of, it doesn't have that credible neutrality. Um, so, so I think for those folks, they, they take a very philosophical stance against Ether. But I think, yeah, I agree with you. For a lot of people who just say, you know, Ether is really not optimized for Ether holders, which has been the case actually for Ethereum for quite a long time. I remember in 2018, I think one of the big ODC desks, they put out a paper saying like Ether inflation is just way too high. We need to lower the block reward from three to two Ether, three to one Ether. And, you know, after some time they ended up doing it and Ether price went up. Um, but, you know, there was just in the beginning because it was growing so fast in utility, there was never that concern for the Ether holder because they were already getting like, you know, the, I think for the core devs, there was this idea that, well, you're already up. 200x you're already up 100x what else do you want like i'm just going to not even think about what either holders want but i think the bear market what it brought out was sort of a like a renewed kind of shelling point that ether had to be a proper sort of value kind of a repudiation of jeremy rubin's idea that you could economically abstract ether out of ethereum 
So, you know, people kind of heard that and then we're like, well, definitely that's not going to happen. And here's why it's not going to happen. So I think Bitcoin, some Bitcoiners who saw that were like, okay, well now uh, this is an investable asset because people are last, they're at least committed to this being an asset um, as opposed to something other than an asset. Because there were quite vocal people in Ethereum who said ETH is not an asset. Like to make it an asset would be to harm Ethereum's goal, right? That was actually a very popular view in 2018. Yeah, it was. Uh, right so. on. Kyle, any reflections on what we've been talking about so far? For me, it's all about on-chain activity, to be honest. Like uh, DeFi summer was fully incentivized, um, but then it came back and it's still, uh, and the yields are still good. And uh, sometimes it's even happening on other chains that are EVM compatible, right? So anytime I see on-chain activity, uh, it, I just feel like it's it's a bull case for ETH. Um, I don't really care where it is, especially since the first bridge people always build is to Ethereum and everything is EVM compatible these days. So yeah, uh, for me, it's all about on-chain activity for Ethereum. Uh, I can't remember where I heard this, Sue, maybe it was on the uh, the Kobe podcast that Ethereum's Capital is the, the largest single holder of Ether. Uh, is that true? And if that is true, or regardless if that's true or not, when is this trade over? When, when sell? Question mark. Definitely not largest, but I think I said one of the largest. One of the uh, largest. I think that is definitely true. I've, I've been trying to figure out what qualifies as one of the largest and made sure we bought the needful amount to, to qualify <laughs> as such. Um, uh, like I was just saying to Kyle, like it'd be such a shame if we bought like these other coins and then we didn't have enough ether. Uh, like and then it and then it went for this move. Like that would just be like, it, it'd be really sad actually. Like like I would actually shed a tear. Well, welcome uh, aboard, guys. <laughs> it's great so to have you. so, um, but you know, like the cool thing about ether too is like even as the market gets more efficient, whatever. Like you, you can kind of imagine a world where you still have a lot of yields for it. You can put it in DeFi and get yields. You can stake it and get yields. There's just so many. There's so much activity happening, right? And there's so many ways to use it. I think yeah. that that's really attractive. Whereas like now with BDC, like the GBTC trade is dead, it's actually negative. And then with BDC as well, it's just it's just a very inert kind of thing. And originally I thought that WBDC would, would be more bearish for Ether than it was because I thought like each chain would just like lionize Bitcoin as like the store value collateral, but that really hasn't happened at all. People do prefer the actual native asset. Even on BSC, people prefer BNB. Uh, and, and, and so that kind of preference for the native asset, that kind of that that kind of native asset nationalism, I think I kind of underestimated, and I and I do think that what WBDC actually did was convert a lot of Bitcoiners to Ethereum because they just put their BDC in there for the yields because they saw their friends getting it, and then they're like, hey, wait a second, like this is actually this is actually kind of cool, and I need to own some of this e like Ether instead, and 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 so that that actually is what actually happened. So there's this I, reserve I, asset quality to it, ETH on on DeFi. Yeah, go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, the the I think one of the other uh, like ultra bull cases for me is um, people realized this past year that they could store their net worth on Ethereum, whether in, and maybe not even in Ethereum for like a lot of people that just steer it on stable coins, right? And they'll happily earn their yields, but that would then become like their primary source of how they would store, maximize and earn their net worth, like on their nest egg, right? And then naturally, yes, of course, like once you're using a, like a platform and a network, like, of course you go like, buy it right like at some point if you're you know have a high risk tolerance you buy a lot if you have a low risk tolerance, you buy a little but like you, you're bullish it right um and i think that is maybe the the like single most pivotal pivotal moment let's say of the past uh, year and a half 
where people uh, both created a lot of net worth, but also happily store like a large percentage of their net worth, just like in the Ethereum network. Uh, are you guys ETH maxis now? ETH holders for life? Kyle, do you have, do you have an opinion on this? We're crypto. Okay, so we are on-chain uh, and crypto maxis and have been for like uh, mm. like a, a while, right? Um, and uh, if Ethereum, it, we believe, is like undervalued given the uh, you know the amount of activity on the network, then yeah, like we're probably going to be overweight Ethereum, right? Um, so yeah, like I, I, I mean, if they if things were to change, like they were to re realize its value, or if the on-chain activity were to slow down, or if another network were that was not EVM compatible were to gain traction, then like maybe I would change my thesis. But um, yeah, for like for the time being, like I really don't see that at all. Like everything has to be EVM compatible to be, you know, to, to, for people to want to interact with it basically right now, right? So I think I, I actually I think there was this like idea, uh, and, and there still is this idealism that at some point people will interact with the blockchain and have no idea what's on the back end, right? Um, and this is still a beautiful vision, but the reality is like the only way to get even close to this vision right now is for you to be EVM compatible. And, 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 and for me, anything that is, is, is basically just bullish Ethereum. Mm -hmm. Sue, anything to add? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, we definitely always try to pride ourselves on being as sort of Bayesian as possible. So like with new information coming in, you, you always have to change kind of a bit how you want to be positioned. So like, you know, if tomorrow uh, Chinese government comes out and says Bitcoin is the only accepted currency, then you have to go buy a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, you have to probably sell your ether to buy Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, so, so there's always non-zero events that can happen that, that make some assets more bullish than others. And I think that that's always true. So um I think that the risk reward for Ether is actually even better now than it was before. It's arguably a better risk reward now than it was uh, during the deep air market where I think you really have to be a true believer and kind of be a deep tech thesis driven investor to, to, to make that trade because you're getting dumped on by everybody right at that time. So I, so I really like applaud the kind of uh, thesis driven kind of investors that, that went in at that time. But I think also like, my hope is that they don't kind of just want to, you know, sell for their 10x, 20x, the 30x now, and then and then move on. Because I have seen a lot of people do that. And I, the thing I tell a lot of crypto natives too is like, if you if you look if you just talk to natives all day, you'll, you'll just see people around you, and then be like, these are all like like everyone's too rich now. We have to sell because everyone's too rich. But like actually, no, you happen to be in the bear market of one of the best assets in the history of assets, and you bought it with your friends. Like you actually deserve to be rich. You, you don't have to be ashamed of it. You can just prefer to keep staying rich, right? So that that kind of PTSD from the bear market, I actually think has caused a lot of people to sell too early on the way up. Um, and 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 so I think that, um, like, for us, we 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 think that you know Ethereum has reached the critical mass point where people can't ignore it. And the scaling is coming uh, in a variety of ways. Even if it doesn't come purely on Ethereum, it'll come through uh, sidechain type solutions. It'll come through other solutions. And, and on-chain activity, like Kyle said, is very good for the entire Ethereum bull case. And so I think you want to give that time to play out uh, in sort of the fullness of that vision. Like right now, there's still a lot of talk about CBDCs and this kind of stuff. Like, like I actually think that a lot of these will be ruled unconstitutional by a lot of jurisdictions and, and, and a lot of like 
judiciaries and what you end up having is you know governments if they want to do ubi like they don't have to create a cbdc they can just like do it on a public chain and then you know whether that's ethereum or on another chain like that that happening is also very bullish for ethereum right it's also very bullish for on-chain activity so i think there's still a whole lot of like misunderstanding even now with the ether at 4k about what it is and what the true vision could be um so i like to see a lot of those things properly play out I'd like to see it go deflationary um i I do think that there will be a lot of trading opportunities as you get closer into flipping as well, uh, because um, there will be a lot of e emotional stuff, right? Like some people will be selling to Bitcoin, some people will be selling the dollars, some people will be buying more. And, and so I think that that will be very volatile. Like, I don't think that will be not volatile, but um, I think we're nowhere near those points yet uh, where we are now. So I think we, we spend actually quite a lot of time. It, I think to some people, it may seem simple that we're just talking about like, long Bitcoin or long Ethereum. Um, but uh, there's this illusion of diversification, right? And um, you can spend a lot of time hunting for like the right alt or the right this or whatever, and then buy like six of them and then want some more and then buy like six more of them. And then before you know it, you got a portfolio of like, I don't know, 20 different like random like positions that you may or may not believe in. Uh, whereas if you had just like decided to denominate your portfolio in ETH, you would have outperformed everything, right? So I think we spend a lot of time just trying to figure out, you know, what are you denominated in and to what degree are you denominated in that? Um, and then, yeah, like we happily trade around other positions too, but uh, that is by far the most important. Well said guys. Look, if flippening, that would be a major event right? The, the first time uh, that uh, Bitcoin was flippant by another crypto asset. Where does this leave? I guess, you know, two things. One, where does this leave Bitcoin? And then secondly, where does this leave other ETH killers? Uh, Kyle, we'll start with you. Um, yeah, I think the, the problem with, uh, let's say, other uh, layer one smart contract, like blockchains, is they, uh, they may or may not have more activity. But the amount of fees being paid on them is tiny compared to what's being paid on Ethereum. And that's part of their value add, right? Like the high TPS, low fee, whatever. But like, actually for me, the whole value of Ethereum is the sh like sheer volume that people are willing to pay in fees, the on-chain activity, right? And so for me, like, like I'm, I, it, it's all about that. It, like, it, yes, if there's a flipping, that maybe you get a higher monetary uh, premium to it. Uh, that, that I think would be like the, the obvious case. But, um, but yeah, like I, it, it, everything. It, when I think about e, like ETH killer or like other layer ones, everything comes back to like, well, is it EVM compatible? Because if if so, then I just buy more ETH. And is it like uh, how much like in fees is being paid there? And if it's like not very much, then like, okay, I don't really care. Like, so, uh, or maybe it's good for some other narrative reason, but it's not like a, like an SOV kind of asset. David calls himself a fee maximalist. I've heard him say this before. And I think that's kind of what you're saying too. Sue, what about you? So if Bitcoin loses the throne, does it lose its value proposition as sort of the, the reserve crypto asset, all the liquidity that comes with that throne? And what's the fate of Bitcoin after that? Let's go, go ahead, Sue. Um, I'm I'm still undecided on this. I, I talked about this a bit in the Kobe podcast also, and I I lean toward it being short midterm, quite bearish for Bitcoin because it would be you'll have a lot of people who are effectively sitting in Bitcoin saying that wow, this is like a stale long almost. Like I I have this long for this thesis, but it's been disproven because it's not 
the most high liquidity and it, you know, the, so that would be quite a scary moment for them. And I, and I think that then that would be the real test for the Ethereum community. Like, will they then sell back to sats and stack more sats or will they really just hold ETH? And if they do just hold ETH, then, then I think that that's, it's going to be very hard to attract additional dollars into Bitcoin because then at that point, um, like I was just speaking with one of the, one of my good friends in, in Ethereum and he was saying how, you know, if ETH flips Bitcoin, the, the wrong question is like, is it bearish for Bitcoin? The next, the right question is how many days would it take Doge to flip Bitcoin next? Because wow. he said ETH flipped Bitcoin very quickly in early 2018 and then XRP came right after, right? And almost flipped it. And so like he's saying like that, like if ETH flips Bitcoin, he says you go all in on like whatever is the third coin at that moment, because that's like kind of like the obvious trade that would happen. So I do see that as kind of being like highly emotional and highly disruptive time if that were to happen, like you're kind of alluding to. And I think there would be a lot of interesting opportunities for sure at that time. Um, you know, I think long-term, it's a different question. I do think that like, I still believe in all of Bitcoin's core, um, core kind of strengths, but the ultimate question, like Kobe said on his podcast is like, does the market demand these things, right? Do does it demand Bitcoin caliber decentralization? Does it demand fixed supply? Does it demand uh, this kind of fixed issuance with like basically very few upgrades and, and you know, this kind of ossified protocol? Does it demand this? Uh, and that, that's also something that only the market can answer, right? But that can't be answered by any individual because the needs of any individual are not relevant for the market. The market and society, if it demands an on-chain future, then that will be very likely in the form of Ethereum as a store value. And if it demands uh, a more austere version of that on-chain, of, of that kind of the future, that's maybe more, you know, regulated and then more like government friendly and then like custody, friend, uh, you know, uh, friendly, then it'll go toward more of that camp. So I think like the, the bullish Bitcoin dominance case has kind of always been the pro-custody, pro kind of, um, you know, regulated on-ramp case that Bitcoin has has generally done better in but even now you know ether had now has all the same on ramps as bitcoin does on those same things right ether also has cme and ether also has the grayscale trust and the etfs and and so that 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 definitely does make it very very hard uh for people to attract inc incremental dollars into the system when you have this uh compare and contrast so yeah, one more thing i would add to that is um i think the bitcoin uh like the, the, the heart of the Bitcoin narrative is about self-custody too, right? But if you look at the, the, the like main thesis of the past year, it has not been about self-custody. It's been about like centralized custody, right? So this uh, I think is a huge problem actually for, for, for Bitcoin. It is not a beautiful future to have centralized custody with regulated on-ramps. It is a beautiful future to have self-custody. And so, yeah, if that were to change, then I think it can be a wonderful store value. But if it is like in centralized places, I don't know, it kind of defeats, uh, it, it hurts the narrative a lot. Thanks for the win. <laughs> yeah. So zooming out, is this the last cycle that crypto is going to see? Do you guys have opinions on this? Kyle, let's start with you. Um, I, I, I think that there are more cycles, to be honest. Uh, I think Sue has a slightly new, he's got a different answer than me. Um, that's why you have both of us on that, right? So uh, yeah, I think there are more cycles. I just think we're nowhere near the top of this cycle. Like, like an Ethereum bull run is not the top of the cycle. Like we gotta, there are other things that are gonna be, but it's not an Ethereum like on-chain bull run. Like that's not it. 
Yeah, I think it's also, it comes down to how you define cycles, right? Like um, I was speaking to Avi at Block Tower about this and he's like, you know, like your super cycle theory has already come true because there are people talking about like Bitcoin versus Ether. And the only question is which one do they buy? It's not a question of like, is crypto a scam? It's only a question of what do you buy? What percent? And and so we've already made it. Like we're already here, guys. Like it's already super cycle uh, because no one is even saying it's a scam anymore, right? And And so... You definitely will always have drawdowns. I mean, even in normal bull markets and equities, you you have drawdowns. And and I, I think that, I mean, DeFi arguably against ETH is already like in a bear market uh, for for some time now. Uh, you know, I think it's down like 50 percent in ETH. Uh, and and so there's kind of always a bear market everywhere, and there's always a bull market everywhere. Uh, and I think that that'll be kind of the, you know, I, I think in 2018, 2019, I, I predicted that we will see all coin correlations go very low. And I think that we're really seeing it now where I think just like the last two weeks, the realized altcoin correlation has gone to like 30% or something, which is like the lowest like ever. I, I can't remember the exact number, but that is, is a sign of maturity, right? It's a sign that like, there's no concept now of like an alt season. Like nowadays you see like some days ETH is up 12% and a lot of alts are down in dollars. And, and so like that, that kind of, uh, you know, I, I think Doge has contributed to that too, where like Doge can be up 20% and everything is down. And, and so I think that that, kind of decoupling of coins versus other coins is very healthy. And, um, you know, after this continues more and more, I mean, single stock correlations in most healthy stock markets are around 30% as well. So you can definitely have markets where, uh, you know, one coin gets very frothy and then it cycles over to another coin or, you know, all coins fall back, you know, 20, 30, 40%. But I don't think you're going to get a 90% fall in either again. Like, I don't think you get that chance again. Um, and the reason why I believe that is because I think the structure of cycles is that it's very often the market gives you that one capitulation and then it's over, right? So like .com, you get that 95% down in Amazon and then you don't get that, you don't get that ever again. And then even the dip buyers, they're hoping for that 20% dip in Amazon and they don't get it and they don't get it for like years. And, you know, ETH, this bull run has been exactly that for a ton of people where they like keep hoping for that proper, you know, bear candle and like that capitulation and massive liquidations and the liquidations come, but then there's spot buyers that buy it right up, you know, and it re and it, and it engulfs a red candle in like two days. And, and so, um, like I said, like, I don't think we're anywhere near the point where you have to be thinking about, um, going like very conservative. Um, I do agree with him that that point may come, but even if you don't look for that point, I don't think you have to worry as much because this is now an institutional grade investment, right? It's not, it's not an investment which is a caliber of like, we can fall 95%, right? Like after 2017, ICOs ha having that much supply and having to dump it to pay their employees, like, yeah, you, you actually can do, lose 95%. Now I think we will not have a 90% drawdown again. Um, I think that, that actually is a very contrarian view in crypto because of the nature of cycles. But I think that if you zoom out of crypto itself and you put it into let's say overall disruption in tech cycles max pain is actually shallow dips uh because it gets everyone who's been used to bigger dips just to not own enough of the asset that they need to have right um guys this has been a really fun episode and you guys are fantastic um thank, thanks for guiding us through the thesis here a little bit in the trade um we've talked super cycles no more 90 percent drawdowns. We talked about the flipping. Sue, I, I want to end with this question because you said 15K earlier in the episode was FUD. 15K price of ETH, that is. What is a realistic price uh, for ETH in this bull cycle for, for this trade that you're making? What's not FUD, sir? I think we'll go over 25K at least. Um, 
I think also that you, when, when the price comes off the blow-off top, if there is one, I don't think that it will be the style of the old one. Because I think that um, if, you, if you think about the way that 2017, 2018 market microstructure was, it was very inefficient, right? There was very like poor liquidity at that time, like Bitfinex was 12% below Coinbase, for instance. So like some would argue like the actual prints aren't even real. Right, the fourteen hundred print isn't even real, and some of these prints aren't even real. Um, whereas now the market's incredibly efficient; the volumes are incredibly high. Crypto volumes are now already higher than exchange volumes on stock exchanges. Um, you know, Binance volume is higher than uh, Chinese stock market volume. Coinbase volume on some days is higher than you know Nasdaq. Actually, that might not be true. I think it's higher than some some things. FTX volume is incredible. I mean, like in the Deribit options market, volumes are just absolutely insane. And I think that all that stuff that's not coming back, right? But that's not going back to the way it was because now people can get higher yields, people can do things, all this kind of stuff. So I think that um, in general, my experience in bull markets is that it goes higher than the most ardent believers believe it will go. And that that is actually the max pain because they sell it based on a dollar view, based on the fact that they can now buy a house, they can now buy five houses, they can now buy a boat, they can buy a bigger boat. And then they, and then so, so max pain is actually them like having been believers, but then not making you know, the full move, the full move, because they think, you know, they're too focused on their own life, basically, in terms of like what that money means for their own life. Um, and that's actually the entire story of like, pretty much all good assets, right? All good assets get priced out of. So, so I think a, another point kind of back to the like, idea of why I think Ethereum is such a strong investment, because it's one of the few assets, I think that is going from many to few in the sense that the you know the the wealthier people are trying to figure out how to how do we get more of this from many people whereas a lot of like other coins it is few people who own them and they want to sell them to many people and so this like few to many and many to few i i think is very bullish because it shows the quality of the asset um kyle give us your price prediction before we uh before we head out i'm with sue i'm with sue i I, I got nothing new to add to that 25k would be a nice target for that um I think for that to happen, you need to see uh, 1559 happen on schedule and you need to see proof of stake. Um, you see those two things, 25K is reasonable. David, what do you think of this? We did an ETH bulls episode and even our most bullish ETH bulls, this was in December, their top was at 20K. Uh, now we're at 25K ETH, mm-hmm. uh, pretty incredible. David, what yeah. you got? Last question. Yeah, Sue, so this is a, a complete, complete, ch- slight, well, slight change of subject, but you often say this phrase, prefer wealth. And I actually haven't really completely integrated what that means. And so I'm just hoping to ask you directly what does prefer wealth mean? There, there's this idea of like log wealth and linear wealth, right? And the, and the idea of this, I mean, we kind of saw the Twitter fights about it with Paradigm and, and then SPF, where SPF is saying, like, I prefer linear wealth. And then Paradigm saying, no, all humans prefer log wealth. It's just a question of how log and all this kind of hilarious stuff. And that's kind of where the prefer wealth meme came out. And I think for me, what it means is that um, when you make a investment decision or a trading decision, you do the one that is to optimize for wealth uh, as linearly as possible because that is the truest uh, form of wealth. And also that you don't try to let like life things come into that. It's almost like a venture approach, right? Like if you make a venture investment in something because it has no liquidity and it has no mark to market, you don't constantly think about how do you sell it? Like 
you just you just ride it up and down. You just prefer owning the thing itself. And I recommend people to view crypto in the same way, where it's you've done this investment into it, and you just let that sit in that actual bucket, uh, and you don't think too hard about what this can now buy you in the real world or what this can. I mean, look, obviously, make sure you don't go broke, right? And make sure you take care of yourself and definitely fine to spend. But you also have to have some part of your brain thinking deep tech venture long-term thesis because that's that's the whole point of being in the investing space in the first place right and so i think that you know that's been kind of my i guess my like lesson to people on twitter which is that you know it's it's actually it's actually totally fine to own assets and if they go up you can keep owning those assets especially if you believe they will continue to make you wealthy there's no need to let's say um um like like basically have this mentality that uh you're constantly looking for when to cash out and when to dump and and when to kind of um start spending the money that you've created you can just grow wealth basically prefer a wealth denomination in crypto money assets i think that's what we're saying i want to end with this quote from from sue it's pinned to the top of his twitter right now if you don't understand crypto and refuse to learn it's going to be a tough century for you i love that I would say the same thing about Ether. It's going to be a tough century unless you understand this asset, this asset class. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure to have you both on Bankless. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. As always, guys, risks and disclaimers, of course. Crypto is volatile and risky. ETH is volatile and risky as well. You could lose what you put in. None of this was financial advice, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.